The rest of us, we're going to continue on with our series on understanding the Bible. Um, and we're going to be looking at this uh, uh, number of weeks here. And in your bulletin, you should have a, an insert of notes. If not, uh, I guess you can go ahead and take those notes in the uh, empty place of your bulletin there in the back. But welcome to week three in our series, Understanding the Bible. It's kind of been a fun ride so far. Uh, it probably has been pretty, um, uh, a lot for every one of us as I've uh, been expressing all these different uh, thoughts and concepts about uh, the Bible. In week one of this series, we talked about how if a non-contingent, uncaused by anything else, self-sufficient, self-reliant, all-powerful, intelligent, always-existing, unique, good, and moral God who loves us were to write a book, it would be the most amazing book ever written. In other words, if God spoke, we would have no doubt that those words were from Him. And without any doubt whatsoever in my mind, I declare that the Bible is that book and that the Bible is from God. And the Bible is unique in its uh, circulation, composition, translation, influence, and survival, as well as continuing universal appeal. It's in a class of its own. The Bible is accurate historically in its text. The Bible is supernatural. It knows some stuff that only God could know, like future events and pre-scientific knowledge. And the Bible is transforming as well. It radically changes the lives of people, and so you can trust what it says. And then last week, last Sunday, we talked about how the Bible has one overriding theme, one purpose, one, one storyline, and that is the coming of Christ. And from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible is about the coming of Jesus. The message of the Old Testament, uh, all the books of, of, of law, history, prophecy, and poetry, is that Jesus is coming. And then the message of the Gospels is that Jesus is here, and then the message of the New Testament all together, is that Jesus is coming again. So now if we really think about it, this dominant storyline of, of the Word of God should not really surprise us. After all, John says in the opening of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, So this morning, we're going to begin a, a two-week conversation about how we got the Bible. Uh, today, we're going to talk about the process of canonization, Probably not the most exciting topic, but hopefully, no matter what you know or don't know about canonization, it, it will mean more to you when we're done today, hopefully. And then next week, next Sunday, we will continue the conversation about how we got the Bible by talking about more of the transmission of the text. So in, in that message, I'll attempt to answer the question of what went on and what things happened between the time that God breathed and Paul and Peter and Luke and Matthew and all those others put their pen to, power, to, to paper, and to where we are today, in, uh, you know, 2,000 years later, holding a Bible in our hands. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, it says, Above all, you must realize that no prophecy in Scripture ever came from the prophet's own understanding or from human initiative. No, those prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit, and they spoke from God. And then also in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, familiar verses, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So 
Now, before we jump into today's message about canonization, I think it's important for me, again, to remind you of what our two primary goals are for this series. Now, remember, one of the goals is to motivate and encourage and challenge and inspire people to read the Bible like never before, because it really is from God, and because in this series of messages, we will be given tools to equip us to understand and apply this Bible better. And the other goal is to take a look at the overwhelming evidence that demonstrates, contrary to the onslaughts of modern culture, that the Bible is not just another book or mere ink on paper, but that it really is from God, the maker of heaven and the maker of earth. So today's message is about canonization, how we got our Bible. Now, when I open up my Bible, I find that it contains 66 books, 39 books in the Old Testament, 27 books in the New Testament. But how do we know if the books in there are the correct ones? Have you ever wondered that? How do we know? Are there some books that should not be in there that are there? And, and, and are there some books that, are, that should be in there and, and are not? But maybe some books have been lost, forgotten, or banned from the Bible. Maybe even through evil intent. I mean, we're talking about people here. But we're going to attack this topic of canonization by unpacking several questions. And you see them in your insert there uh, as well in the notes. One is, why is this conversation important? Why talk about canonization? It doesn't seem very exciting. Well, give it a moment. Uh, what is canon and what is canonization? Uh, it's, it's a little black ball you put into a big old thing that shoots out. No, that's the wrong kind of canon. <laughs> don't, don't think about that. Why can, why can we be confident in the Old Testament canon? And why can we be confident in the New Testament canon? All these things, hopefully we'll, we'll get through these uh, four different questions today, uh, time allowing. And uh, so if you're ready, we're going to look at the first statement, first question. Why is this an important conversation? Simply to give us confidence in the book that we have based our life on and have placed our hope in. So to give us confidence in this book we call the Bible. If you and I are going to base our lives and place our hope in the words that are in this book, then we should want to be confident that we have the very words that God breathed and that we do not have anything in our Bibles that God would not want in there. Things that are not from Him, words that He did not speak, words that are not God-breathed. So, how confident are you that this book contains what God spoke? And if you are confident, why? Why are you confident? What fuels that confidence? Some questions to think about as far as when, you know, why is this, why do you believe what you believe? Uh, next, this conversation is also important because the Bible today is being attacked on so many different fronts. And probably that's why you maybe, you believe the Bible is true and all that, but you're not quite sure because you've heard other things and you've heard attacks, and you're wondering, well, I wonder if that's true then. Now, I don't have time to go into detail about all of this, but here are some of the main attackers against the canon of the Bible in recent years. One is the Da Vinci Code. You've heard of it before? Da Vinci Code. 2006, this book created a tsunami of panic in the church. It was crazy, and it was, it was real. But seriously, how is it possible that a fictional book could do that? Because God's people were not totally prepared. 
They believed God's word, they knew it to be true, but they had trouble with the why. Why do you believe this to be true? There's another one, attack on the Bible, from the Jesus Seminar. This, they're trying to invent, reinvent Jesus to make him more palatable, basically. Uh, you've heard of Build-A-Bear. Go to town center, you can go over to that place, Build-A-Bear. Uh, this is kind of like build your Jesus. It's just stuff in there, the things you like, and everything will go great. There's also unbelieving critical scholarship that goes on, whose favorite resting and launching places are colleges and universities. They're just waiting for your kids and also mine to get there and let them know what real truth is all about. There's Islam. It's doing a lot of attacking of the Bible today as both an offensive and defensive weapon. There's secularism as well. How silly and primitive to think that there is a God out there that would say this is right and this is wrong. That's silly. After all, intelligent people know that truth is diverse and not absolute, except that Christians are absolutely wrong. So why are these people so adamantly attacking the, uh, the reliability of the Bible? Because they know that Scripture is the very foundation. It's the core, it's the heart of the Christian faith. So if you can damage and put a crack in, into the foundation, saying maybe that the Bible we have is not reliable, or maybe it's not really from God, all we are left with is another human religion. So once the scriptures go, once its authority is no longer valid, eventually the entire thing falls apart. And if it does survive, what remains no longer resembles what God's word says his church and his people should, should be. Listen to, to this quote from James White, a theologian. He says this, Serious believers are, who desire to engage the culture directly and powerfully must not only master the content of the Bible, but must do what some preceding generations did not need to do. That is, we must know far more about the uh, preservation, canonization, and the transmission of the Bible than ever before. And due to modern technology and the Internet, attacks upon the faith can spread very quickly and with relative ease today. Therefore, we need to be familiar familiar with the arguments that are being thrown out there in an effort to undermine and attack not only the Bible, but our faith. And yes, though this is secondary to us knowing and understanding the Bible itself, nevertheless, it is vital for us to know this stuff. So I believe that James White has it down right. We can know the Bible and all that. We can believe it and everything else. But why? Why do you know it's true? Why do you know this is God's word? We need, a, we need to answer those questions as well. A third reason why this conversation is important for us to have is that there are often serious consequences if we are un, unable to answer the skeptics. There are major consequences if we are unable to answer the skeptics. And when skeptics know more than believers do about topics such as the Bible, it becomes pretty difficult to bring a defense. You get people coming to your door and they know more about God's Word than you do, and they don't even believe God's Word, but they know more about it. And the best case scenario is that the skeptic wins the argument. The worst case scenario is that we doubt and then lose our faith, and the skeptic never finds his. Some, sometimes people doubt and lose their faith because they just can't answer the skeptic. Maybe they're, tr they're right, maybe they're correct, and maybe I'm wrong. And sometimes it is drastic and obvious, and other times it's so much subtle. 
but yet it still affects their views and the authority of Scripture in their lives. So once you doubt or, or, or refuse to believe some of Scripture, it becomes very difficult to believe Scripture at all. It just takes a little bit, and then everything else starts coming through. Well, if that isn't true, then this must not be true. And if that isn't true, this must not be true. And then on down the line. So why is canonization an important conversation to have? Well, it's to give us confidence in the book that we have based our life on and have placed our hope in. The Bible today is being attacked on so many different fronts, and there are often serious consequences if we are unable to answer the skeptics. Michael Kruger, uh, author of books that deal with the authority of Scripture, he said this about canonization. He said, dealing with canon and scriptural issues is a shepherding issue. You're going to have people in your congregation, in fact, you have them right now, even if you don't realize it, who are confused and worried and have anxiousness over whether or not these books they think are God's Word really are God's Word. Now, I don't know how many here today or whatever, but maybe you've had doubts every now and then about some portions of Scripture. Maybe you've come across portions of Scripture that you're looking at that contradict, seemingly contradict something else in the Bible, and you're going, hmm... I wonder. And then maybe you get a little anxious about it. Is this really God's Word? I mean, do I have to have a certain version of the Bible to make sure I have God's Word? You know, all these thoughts, everything else going through there. So, what is, bless you, what is canon and canonization? Let's look at that question at this point. The word canon is derived from the Greek word kano, which means a ruler or a measuring stick. And in other words, it is a standard by which we measure something else. Now, in early Christian usage, the, the word canon came to mean the, the books that God inspired, and therefore they are the rule by which we measure, measure truth and life and faith and everything else. And today, many people view canon as simply the list of books that are in the Bible. James White, in his book, Scripture Alone, he said, if the canon is nothing more than a table of contents, then it is a purely human thing known by men and hence subject to all the endless debates and arguments history presents as having already taken place in almost every generation. But what if canon is more than that? That's a good question. What if canon is more than just that list of books or, or defined as such? When did the canon start to exist? When did it first begin existing? The historical critical scholars, those who don't believe in God and who constantly strive to undermine the reliability of the Bible, which seems to be a pretty significant bias, especially being someone who is talking about which books should and should not be in the book from God, when you don't even believe the Bible, but usually say that it was not until the 4th century that the, the canon first began to exist. In other words, they promote the theory, the belief that for the first 300 years, there really was no Bible. So Christians really had no idea or commonly held belief of what was and what was not Scripture. You see, modern-day critics like to say that early Christianity was wildly diverse in both thought and theology, and they teach that there was no distinct view of Christianity during the first three centuries of the church. Instead, they contend that there were countless views of Jesus, God, and salvation. So in other words, there was no real Christianity, but many Christianities. And so what, what you have 
in their view, is all of these different views fighting for preeminence. Which one's going to win over? So today, we're only reading the books in the Bible from the group who eventually won that battle. So this is what we have left over, the ones that won. Modern-day critics contend that if another group would have won the battle, then we would be reading their books today, and we wouldn't even know the difference. There's little doubt that the culture we find ourselves living in, one that loves diversity, one that is repulsed by absolute truths, would embrace this kind of thinking with great enthusiasm. Since there's no real truth, since there's no real Jesus, no real scripture, I can just pick out whatever version I like and whatever best suits and fits with my chosen lifestyle and personal beliefs. No problem. But this comes down to the question of what the canon really is in the first place. If we assume that the canon is nothing more than just a list, then the canon started to exist when someone wrote that list down. But what if the canon actually is God's inspired word? God breathed. Now, if that is true, then the canon began to exist when the very first book was inspired and written down. Like when Moses wrote down, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And first we had one book, then we had two books, and we had three, and so on, so on, as God breathed and men wrote. Let me give you an example of, of what I'm trying to say here. Some of you write blogs. You know, blogs are, are those things. Some of you don't. For so, those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about, a blog is basically a shortening of the word web log. And it's an online journal, or informational website that is a platform where uh, writers or even a group of writers share their views on an individual subject. Now, some of you have read uh, our daughter Maddie's blog. And it had, you know, she's written in her blog regarding Africa and her experience of God in her life. They're pretty inspirational, some of those. So there's a canon of documents that Maddie has written versus the rest of the world's documents that she did not write. And Maddie knows what these documents are, even if no one else does, because she wrote them. So when did her canon start to exist? The moment she wrote her very first blog. And as she writes more blog entries, her canon gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So when did the canon of the Bible start to exist? When God wrote down the very first book. If God inspired any book out there, then there is a canon out there, whether, whether we have a list or not. You see, the canon is first and foremost a theological issue, not a historical issue. Whenever we try to defend the reliability of our Bible only from a historical perspective, about lists, we are going about it all wrong. If God intends to reveal himself to people for a purpose, and if God is active in this world, and if it is his purpose and desire that the scripture function as the rule of faith, and if it is his purpose to build the church on his revealed word, then it only makes sense that God would exert and utilize just as much divine power to make sure that the church has the scripture and knows what it is and what it is not, and as he did when he inspired it in the first place. It's actually crazy to think that he would do otherwise. You know, okay, here are my words about life, about me, about how to live, and about how to find salvation. Man, I sure hope you find them. God's not like that. 
We need to see canon from both a theological and a historical perspective, but the starting point needs to be theological. That, that God spoke, that God inspired men to write what he, had, what, what he breathed out, what he wants us to know and have that revelation. The bottom line, canon, the, the word from, from God, is not a statement of the church. We do not get to tell God what to write or to tell him what he did or did not write. Canon is not created by men or the church. They only seek to recognize it. That's all. Norman Giesler, he was an American Christian systematic theologian and philosopher. Great title. Uh, he said, a book is not the word of God because, it's, because it's, it's accepted by the people of God. Rather, it was accepted by the people of God because it is the word of God. That is, God gives the book its divine authority, not the people of God. They merely recognize the divine authority which God gives to it. It's already there. We're just recognizing, yep, this has got God's fingerprints all over it. Okay, so with all that being said, the best way to view canon is in two ways. You see it there in spaces in your notes. You probably wrote some other things down there, and you're thinking, oh, that was it. Oh, that was it. No. First, there is canon-inspired. It's canon-inspired, and that's the first line there, which came into existence and was created the very moment God breathed, the men wrote. So first you have canon-inspired. And then there is canon recognized, canon recognized, which is the canon recognized by God's people, led by God's Spirit over time. So it's already out there. We're recognizing what it is. And please understand that disputes about canon recognized do not in any way destroy the existence of canon inspired. Any more than disputes over doctrinal issues mean that there are no ultimate truths about doctrinal issues. So I hope you're still with me. <laughs> hope you're following along with this. But let's unpack that third statement, third question regarding canonization. That third one, we can, why, why can't we be confident in the Old Testament canon? Why? Well, two words, fulfilled prophecy. <laughs> fulfilled prophecy. We talked about this in uh, the first uh, Sunday of this series, how only God is able to predict future events. You know, we talked about Ezekiel's incredible precise predictions about the destruction of Tyre, that, that city. And we talked about the countless predictions about Jesus, the coming Messiah, that were made hundreds of years before Jesus put on flesh and invaded this planet. And there are so many other prophecies in the Old Testament that, that were fulfilled, like Isaiah predicting the rise of the Persian Empire and its leader Cyrus by name, hundreds of years before Cyrus was born. Uh, Daniel. Daniel predicted in great detail the rise and fall of empires, Babylon, Persians, Greeks and Rome, and again, hundreds of years before it all came to pass. So fulfilled prophecy. And they were, they were received as Scripture as they were written, what was going on. And remember that it's not as modern critics profess. You know, a bunch of bearded guys getting together, wearing colorful robes, meetings, and said, hey, that's what God's Word is. <laughs> There's Scripture right there. It's not how it happened. What we see is that when the prophets of God wrote, they knew that they were writing Scripture. They were writing down what God spoke, and the people received it as such. After Moses finished writing a book, uh, the words of, his, of, of this law from beginning to end, he gave this command to the Levites in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 26, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. He said, Take this book of the law and place it beside, beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God. There it will remain as a witness against you. And then in Joshua chapter 24, 
verses 26 and 27, says, And Joshua recorded these things in the book of the law of God. Then he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak near the holy place of the Lord. See, he said to all the people, this stone will be a witness against us. It has heard all the words the Lord has said to us. It will be a witness against you if you are untrue to your God. For Samuel chapter 10, verse 25 says, Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the Scriptures, according to the word of the Lord given to, the Jer- given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. Daniel is saying, basically, hey, you know this stuff Jeremiah wrote? It was Scripture, and it was from God. And in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 24, we find that in King Josiah's day, the law of Moses was preserved in the temple. In Nehemiah chapter 9, Ezra possessed copies of the law of Moses and the prophets. So and when it came to accepting what was written as being from God, God gave them two main tests. Two main tests to make sure this was from God. One is the prophetic test. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, we find this, verses 21 and 22. But you may, you may wonder, how will we know whether or not a prophecy is from the Lord? If the prophet speaks in the Lord's name, but his prediction does not happen or come true, you will know that the Lord did not give that message. That prophet has spoken without my authority and need not be feared. And with this prophetic test, there was also, within this prophetic test, was the short-term fulfillment for the, for the people back then. Like Elijah saying, it's going to stop raining for three years. It did. And then there's the long-term fulfillment of prophecy uh, for us. Like, uh, how did Micah know where the birth of Jesus would take place 500 years before Jesus was born? <laughs> so you have the short-term and long-term fulfillment. And then there's the other test. you got the prophetic test. Then there's the consistency test. And Deuteronomy chapter 13, the first three verses of, the, of that chapter, said, If a prophet or one who foretells by dreams appears among you and announces to you a sign or wonder, And if the sign or wonder spoken of takes place, and the prophet says, let us follow other gods, gods you have not known, and let us worship them, you must not listen to the words of that prophet or dreamer. The Lord your God is testing you to find out whether you love him with all your heart and with all your soul. So, in other words, if the the future word from a prophet disagrees with the words from an earlier prophet, it is wrong. You cannot change or alter God's truth follow after some, something else or someone else. And according to Judaism, the canon was completed by about 400 B.C. In fact, the first century Jewish historian Josephus said, from Artaxerxes, the fourth century, until our time, everything has been recorded. Let me say one, uh, one more thing uh, that should give us confidence in the Old Testament canon. Jesus affirms it as well. Jesus makes quotations from all over the Old Testament. And interestingly, Jesus never quotes from any other writing, some, some lost or banned book of the Bible or whatever. And, and, but he calls Scripture what is Scripture. Instead, everything he quotes, it is written. God says those things we find in what we call our Old Testament. Now check out what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 23, where he, he kind of bookends the Old Testament Scripture as he tells it straight to the Pharisees and teachers of the law. 
He says in Matthew 23, verse 35, he says, And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. So both, both Jesus and the apostles quote from the Old Testament over 300 times affirming its validity. And there's something else you can put in your I have confidence in the Old Testament canon file. It is believed by Jews to be, the, uh, be from God as well. When you read the Gospels, you find Jesus fighting, debating, disagreeing often with the scribes and the Pharisees, right? And they rarely agree on anything, not even on the definition of who is my neighbor. But do you realize what they never debated or disagreed on? It was Scripture, what Scripture was. They never said, well, Jesus, that Scripture's not in my Bible. They never didn't get there. They understood, yeah, (laughs) God's Word. Yeah, you're right. So bottom line, the Old Testament is proven, four ways here, the Old Testament is proven by fulfilled prophecy to be from God. The Old Old Testament canon started to exist when it began to be written. And the Old Testament is approved and affirmed by both Jesus and the apostles. And the Old Testament is believed by also the Jews to be from God. So let's unpack this last statement, last question, and uh, see why can we be confident in the New Testament canon. As I said earlier, the popular idea out there is that sometime in the 4th century, a a bunch of bearded guys in robes got together and they decided on what books are from God. One of the common ideas is that this happened when Constantine converted to Christianity and held what is known as the Council of Nicaea. And at that council, they claim that a bunch of men decided what is Scripture, but that is not how it actually happened. There were no votes taken. Ephesians, 9 to 4, it passes. Very good. Okay. And at the council... Uh, all these things were going on. Remember that our confidence in the New Testament canon begins not in the 4th century, but rather in the 1st century. It begins with the words that Jesus spoke and with the words that the apostles wrote as men sent out by him and for him with the gospel message. One of the common views of modern-day critics is that these guys had no idea that they were, they were writing, uh, what they were writing was Scripture from God. Had no idea that it was God breathed or that what they wrote had authority. No idea at all. But again, simply not true. Kind of like the other idea that modern critics promote that Jesus never claimed to be God. <laughs> that all Jesus knew was that he was just a good guy, a teacher, and a rabbi. And later, men in power in the fourth century put that label God on Jesus to give authority to their teachings and to cement their power. Not true. So you can be confident in the New Testament canon because, first of all, the first century writers knew they were writing Scripture. The first century writers knew they were writing Scripture. It's God-breathed. And Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, and through whom also He made the universe." Sounds like speaking for God to me. John chapter 12, verse 49, For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. And also, Jesus speaking for God was predicted by Moses in Deuteronomy. Chapter 18, verses 17 through 19. The Lord said to me, What they say is good. I will raise up for them 
a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. So Jesus spoke for God, and he sent out his apostles to speak for God as well. John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said to them, Peace be with you, as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. Second Peter verse, chapter 3, verse 2, I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by, by our Lord and Savior through, our, through your apostles. Sure sounds like scripture and authority to me. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles, New Testament, and prophets, Old Testament, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. We never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what, he's, what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. And this word continues to work in you who believe. And then 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 16. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of, uh, of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. So what is, Pe what is Peter calling Paul's writing? He's, call he's calling Paul's writing scripture. Scripture. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18 says, For scripture says, Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. So Paul is quoting the words Jesus spoke, as recorded in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, verbatim in the Greek, verbatim. So Paul is calling Luke uh, Scripture, the Gospel of Luke Scripture. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, if anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. And then the next two passages I want to share with you clearly demonstrate the false idea of Christianity being some wildly diverse and that there, there being no single accepted view of Christianity until the 4th century. And Jude, that little tiny book, Jude, Jude 3. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. And then also in Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. But even if we are an angel from heaven, but even if, yeah, we, we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So all these things point out that there was a, a, a very succinct, uh, idea and knowledge that this is God's word and we, th this Christianity is something that we know about and we're following. It's not something that was made up later on or kind of just wildly uh, diverse or whatever. So next you can be confident in the New Testament canon because also the, ap the apostolic and early church fathers quoted it and spoke of it as scripture. Have you heard of these guys before? Apostolic fathers? Early church fathers? Long before this so-called 4th century meeting of bearded guys in colorful robes, we had these people that came along, and they were able to give uh, testimony. Uh, Clement of uh, Rome in 95 AD, the apostles, he said, the apostles received the gospels for us and the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was sent from God. 
Christ, therefore, is from God and the apostles from Christ. And Clement, uh, he, he quotes from Matthew, he quotes from Luke, 1 Corinthians and Romans, Galatians and Hebrews, and refers to them as Scripture. Ignatius, 110 A.D., he was on his way uh, to be martyred, and he wrote a bunch of letters. And uh, in these letters, he called the Gospels Scripture and spoke much of Paul's letters. Polycarp, in 110 A.D., he was a disciple of the Apostles John, and in a letter, Polycarp wrote to Philippi. And he quotes Ephesians and calls it Scripture. And it's not like he's trying to make a case for why it is Scripture, but he just assumes that everyone knew it was. And he quotes from Matthew, Luke, Acts, 1 John, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, 1 and 2 Timothy. And then he mentions Paul several times and acknowledges that Paul is an apostle and his authority in his writings in the church. In fact, Polycarp places the apostles alongside the prophets as being equal in authority and being scripture. Papias, uh, 125 AD, he was a friend of Polycarp, and he heard John preach, and he knew the, the daughters of uh, Philip, the evangelist. Papias uh, received his information about the Gospels from one of Jesus' disciples directly. And he talks about a number of New Testament writings, but speaks most about the Gospels, even saying that John the Apostle told him that Mark was Peter's scribe, and that he wrote down everything Peter said accurately. So you have Papias. You have Justin Martyr, 150 A.D., he quotes from Matthew, Mark, and Luke and sees them as Scripture. He quotes most of Paul's works and 1 Peter and also Revelation. Tatian, uh, 160 AD. He was, he, he was taught and mentored by uh, Justin Martyr, and he put together a harmony of the Gospels called the Diatessaron. Then there's this fragment called the uh, Muratorian fragment in 170 AD. And even though the fragment is is mutilated at the beginning, it seems to have mentioned Matthew and Mark indirectly because it goes on to mention Luke as the third gospel and then it mentions John. The fragment also mentions uh, other books, Acts, Epistles of Paul, Jude, First and Second John, Revelation, and Peter. Interestingly, the, this fragment says that the shepherd of Hermes should not be included in this list, or whatever writings that was, because it was written in our time, it says. In other words, an apostle did not write it, so it is not Scripture. So don't include that. For so he was even discerning some things here. Uh, Theophilus of Antioch, 177 A.D. In his writings, he was making the argument that the Christian writings have the same authority as the Old Testament writings. He said, concerning the righteousness which the law enjoined, confirmatory utterances are found both with the prophets and in the Gospels because they all spoke inspired by one Spirit of God. Arrhenius, uh, 180 AD, we continue on. He is the first guy to come out and say that there are just four Gospels, because around this time, some others were being written. And in talking about the Gospels, he says this. He says, we have learned from none others the plan of our salvation than from those through whom the Gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public, and at a later period, by the will of God, handed down to us in the Scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. Clement of Alexandria, 198 A.D. Clement was an intellectual giant and well-read in both biblical and extra-biblical literature. He mentions and quotes from a number of books of the Bible, of four Gospels, Revelation, and he sees them all as Scripture. 
Michael Kruger, uh, not one of the uh, apostolic fathers, <laughs> he was an author of the question, uh, book, The Question of Canon. And he said, and again, there are neither any indications that Clement viewed the scriptural status of these books as an innovation, nor does he appear to have received his information from Arrhenius. On the contrary, like Arrhenius, he reviewed these books as having an ancient pedigree within the Christian church. These were the ones that were handed down to the church from the apostles themselves. So this wild diversity thing, this, uh, you know, uh, the first 300 years of the church, and, and this no solid agreement on what is scripture until the fourth century, it, it, before the meeting of these powerful bearded men in colorful robes, simply does not hold up to history. And then around 320 AD, we start to see some lists of what scripture is by using the same criteria that had been used throughout the centuries. Three criteria. One of them was, was the book written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle. If it was, then we're, we're good. We're good so far. Second one, was the book widely accepted by the church? If so, okay, we're good with, with that one. And the third one was the teaching in conformity to the standards of sound doctrine. So if it passed those three things, then we're, we're good to go with this. And some crazy stuff in those other writings uh, were there. Like in the Gospel of Thomas, I don't know if you've heard of the Gospel of Thomas before, but when Jesus is raised, a talking cross comes out of the tomb with him. Hmm, okay. And Jesus, as a child, gets mad and zaps a playmate to death. In the Gospel of Thomas. So, yeah. So when any reasonable person put those so-called banned books of the Bible up against the books in our Bible, the difference is so obvious. And, of course, in 320 A.D., uh, we, we hear more about these lists. Eusebius, he lists 22 books. And uh, he didn't list, uh, he didn't include James, Jude, and 2 Peter, and 2 and 3 John, not because no one recognized them, but because there actually was some doubt at that time. 330 A.D., Cyril of Jerusalem lists 26 books. And then 367 A.D. and 390 A.D. and 394 and 95 and 97 A.D. All these people list all these books. 27 of those books are listed within our Bible. Every one. So that's probably enough for you right now. You're probably going, oh my goodness. How was your sip from today's fire hydrant? <laughs> Sometimes it happens like that. We need to understand that what we have here in our hands is God's inspired word. God breathed. And if you have any doubt about it, you need to do a little more research about it. So you have a reason why. It's okay to have blind faith, I guess, in a way, and say, no, I believe God's word, and that settles it for me. Oh, great. It settles it for you. But what about that person that comes knocking on your door and says, why? What do you have for them? And we're supposed to be able to let others know about the faith we have, the hope we have, and why we believe what we believe. And we need to be ready. So hopefully this series is helping you a little bit more, get some foundation about that, and uh, even though you might be sipping from a fire hydrant a couple Sundays here. But, so I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. They're going to lead us a couple songs. And uh, uh, as they do, as they come on up, how did we get our Bible? How did we get our Bible? Basically, God breathed it. Man wrote down what uh, he breathed. That's canon-inspired. And what we see is that from the first century and into the second century, man saw these writings as Scripture, canon-recognized. 
And why is all of this important? You know, to give us confidence in the book that we have based our hope on and placed our hope in. And this book I have before me is from God. We can be confident. And with great confidence comes great responsibility to read it and live by it. 